Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. With all the excitement surrounding the 2019 edition of the Cleveland Browns and understanding just how bad the Browns have been since their rebirth in 1999, it's hard to imagine that this team was once the cream of the crop in the NFL. Yes, the Browns were the NFL's best team, but it was so long ago that very few can remember the last coach to lead the Browns to a championship. And while he only won one title, he did play for more. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the forgotten career of Blanton Collier. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you can join us for a look back at a career so few know little about. The coaching career of Blanton Collier, the last man to lead the Cleveland Browns, to an NFL championship. I say NFL because before the Super Bowl was played, the first occurring in 1967 between the Green Bay Packers and Kansas City Chiefs, the NFL staged its own championship, and in 1964, the Browns beat the Baltimore Colts 27 to nothing. That, folks, is the last time the Browns won a championship title. In fact, here's a little rundown. The Browns came into existence in 1946 as a member of the newly formed AAFC, the All-America Football Conference. Cleveland went on to win the AAFC championship in 1946, 47, 48, and 1949. Cleveland's first year as a member of the NFL was 1950, and they beat the Los Angeles Rams to capture the NFL crown 30-28. In 1951, the Rams returned the favor, beating the Browns 24-17. Cleveland proceeded to lose the next two championships, 17-7 and 17-16, to the Detroit Lions. Yeah, once upon a time, the Lions were pretty good, too. In 1953, Cleveland downed the Lions 56-10, and in 1955, Cleveland beat the Rams again 38-14. Cleveland missed the 56 championship game, but came back strong in 1957 only to lose to the Lions again 59-14. The Browns slid a little after that game, but with Jim Brown in the lineup, started climbing to the top. And in 1964, with Branton Collier at the helm, reached the pinnacle, downing the Baltimore Colts 27 to nothing. 
They lost to the Packers in 1965, 23-12, the Colts in 1968, 34-0, and made their final NFL championship appearance in 1969, losing to the Minnesota Vikings 27-7. In all, including the AAFC, that's an incredible 15 championship appearances in 24 years, and on eight occasions, they walked off the field as champions. Of course, most of those championships came with the legendary Paul Brown leading the way, but Blanton Collier didn't disappoint. In fact, in his eight years as coach of the Browns, Collier went 76-34-2, and and his worst year was his last year. 1970, when Cleveland went 7-7. Seven and seven. Joining us in just a moment will be Roger Gordon. Some of you might remember Roger from episode 21 when we spoke to him about the career of the quarterback who led the Browns to the 1964 championship, Frank Ryan. Roger is back with us for this episode about Collier, someone he speaks a great deal about in his new book, Blanton's Browns, a terrific recap of Cleveland's superior years of 1964 through 1969. Before we get there, though, remember, there are several ways you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes. Follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Check out Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for our page on Facebook or follow us on the web at sportsfh.com. In fact, on sportsfh.com, I have links to a lot more about Blanton Collier, and you can learn more about today's guest, Roger Gordon. Also, please send us your comments about today's show, and on sportsfh.com, you can suggest topics for upcoming episodes, or check out more information on any of our past episodes and our past guests. As always, please, wherever you can, leave us a rating. Leave it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Hey, as I've mentioned previously, we are relaunching our Patreon page. And I need a favor from all of you. Please, let us know what type of extra content you might want to hear. If you'd like to submit direct questions to our guests, what kind of contests would interest you, and how we can make our Patreon page even better. Please let us know by sending an email to warren at sportsfh.com. That's warren at sportsfh.com. Also, later on, we'll reach into our mailbag and read some more of your comments. Back to Blanton. He was a career coach getting his start at the age of 22 for Paris High School in Kentucky in 1928. He stayed through the 1943 season and then moved on to Navy, where he served as an assistant coach in 1944 and 1945. And then in 1946, he joined the staff of Paul Brown with the newly formed Cleveland Browns. He served as an assistant under Brown from 1946 through 1953 and then went back to the college ranks where he replaced Bear Bryant at Kentucky as the Wildcats head coach. Over the course of eight years, Collier went 41, 36, and 3. In 1962, Collier rejoined Cleveland as an offensive assistant 
and then was elevated to head coach in 1963, where he remained through the 1970 season before calling it quits at the age of 64. Was he done? Well, Blanton rejoined the Browns in 1975 for a two-year stint as the team's quarterback coach before finally retiring for good. All right, let's get to more about Blanton with Roger Gordon, the author of the new book, Blanton's Browns. Roger, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Last time we spoke, we talked about Frank Ryan. What have you been up to since then? Uh, oh, since then, I've, I uh, I think that was probably about two years ago or something, I, I think. Um, since then, I uh, put the finishing touches on my uh, new book that just came out about a month ago about the late 60s Browns. And uh, I wrote, also had a book come out just a couple days ago, an NFL trivia book honoring the 100th season of the NFL. Um, so uh, since our last interview, I was busy putting putting those together. Very cool. The book that you just came out with, Blanton's Browns, why call the book Blanton's Browns instead of something about, you know, more Cleveland-esque? Um, well, my publisher came up with that title, I got to admit. I think, it's a, I think it's a good title. I think it kind of rolls off the tongue. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, think, I think, you know, he was Blaine Collier. He wasn't a rah-rah coach like Vince Lombardi. He was a very scholarly, uh, down-to-earth players coach. The, I think the players looked at him as, a father figure or even a grandfather figure and they respected him so much. Um, you know, I think they probably titled it that because, you know, he was the head coach and, um, you know, I just, I think, uh, even though he wasn't a rah-rah guy, he still commanded the respect of all his players. And that's, you know, that's, you'd have to ask my publisher beyond that. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Blanton Collier, what intrigues you so much about Blanton? I, I think I think uh, just what I said that he 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 was not a rah rah guy, but he still committed. He proved that you can command respect from your players without being a yelling, loud, obnoxious, uh, obnoxious coach. He, you know. And another thing that sort of fascinated me about him, which I only mentioned in the uh in the foreword by Gary Collins uh was that he he had he had a very hard time hearing. Yes, I I and, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm pretty sure that's why he retired after the 1970 season was because of his hearing problems, but you know, even with his hearing problems, he was still able to, you know, coach some great teams. Mhm. Mhm. Roger, while we're going to spend some time talking about players and different aspects of the Brown teams that Collier coached, I think a fair way to start our conversation about Blanton is this. How or was it difficult for Blanton Collier to come in and replace a legend? I mean, even though Paul Brown did not have the best of seasons in 1962, 
with the Browns going 7-6-1, and one, he was still a legend. And it's not yeah. always the wisest choice to be the guy who comes in immediately after a legend leaves. So yeah. was that difficult for Blanton? I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, they were not on speaking terms. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that when Brown found out that Collier was going to replace him, I'm pretty sure that they did not speak to each other again until the Browns and Bengals met in an exhibition game in 1970. I'm not 100% sure about that, but Paul Brown was very, uh, I think, was not happy that his good friend Blanton Collier uh, was going to replace him. Um, do I think it was hard for Blanton Collier? I mean, anytime you replace a, a good friend like that, I'm, I'm sure it probably was. Um, I should have read that book that, that Blanton Collier's daughter read, wrote about him. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I should have probably uh, read that book in preparation mm -hmm. to write my book, but I didn't. But um, so, you know, just naturally, it, it probably was a little bit hard, but, you know, it sure didn't seem like it in the records. I mean, they went from seven, six, and one to 10 and three. Mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. I mean, seven, seven, six, and one to 10 and four, and mm -hmm. almost winning the Eastern Conference in Collier's first year. Um, and, you know, I think it's unfair of people when they say, well, Blanton Collier won with Paul Brown's players. Well, he did win with Paul Brown's players, but Paul Brown wasn't winning with Paul Brown's players. <laughs> exactly. In, in, in like 62, 61, 60, 59, they were like eight and five, seven, six and one, you know, decent records, but not up to what the Browns had used to do. So, 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 you know, he, he, Collier won with those players. He did a lot better with those players than Paul Brown was able to the last three or four years. Mm -hmm. And what about Brown? He, he he had an incredible record with the Browns, a team that was named after him. And all his record was 158 wins, 48 losses with eight ties for the Browns. And he won three NFL championships to go along with four all-America yeah. Football Conference championships. There was little he had not accomplished. But if I follow correctly, he and the team's new owner at that time, Art Modell, they didn't really see eye-to-eye. -eye. So oh, what no. was it that Brown and Modell didn't see eye-to-eye -eye on? And why was Brown unable to stop the team from from sliding wow further down the standings. I mean, I, I think between the two of them, that it, it was a power struggle. Um, Modell came in this hot shot, that TV executive coming in from New York who doesn't have a career in football. And he starts making these trades, I think, without informing Paul Brown. And Paul Brown was very upset when he found out that they were making, I don't know how many trades it was, but there were football decisions that Art Modell was making without even notifying Paul Brown. And I think Paul Brown was not, not not only the head coach, but I think he was also the general manager. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when Modell started doing that, they, you know, Paul Brown didn't like that. And I think Modell was hanging around practices a lot, and, and I don't think Paul Brown liked that either. I think the owner before Modell, the, Paul, Paul, since the Browns started in 46, I don't think Paul Brown was used to owners, the owners of the team, 
hanging around practice all the time. And mm-hmm. Modell currently did do that and, and making moves without notifying him. And I think that just got them off to a bad start. And, and uh, I mean, I think Brown disliked Modell more than Modell disliked Brown. But by by the end, I think they both disliked each other. <laughs> so so out goes Paul Brown, and in comes Blanton Collier. How did his style differ from from Brown's? I mean, I read in your book where Paul Brown believed more in a one on one attack that you block someone and you stay yep. on him, you drive him into the ground. Whereas Collier believed more in an attack where you would block someone and then move on to the next guy. That's just one subtle difference in their philosophies. In what other ways did they differ? Well, I mean, as far as I know, um, the difference between the 1962 offense and the 1963 offense, Paul Brown, you know, Jim Brown, I think, almost doubled his yardage total rushing. Now, that may not sound like opening up the offense, and I'm not a football tactician, but uh, and I'm not sure about uh, the quarterback's uh, statistics from, from 62 to 63, but I do know in one way or another uh, the players were very happy because Blaine Collier did open up the offense uh, much more. Paul Brown was playing very, I guess, very close to the vest, and uh, some players were thinking that the uh, – thinking that the uh, time was passing him by or that the the NFL was passing him by. I mean, he did the innovations like the face mask and the messenger guard system, but the players felt that he was stuck, you know, stuck in 1955, I guess, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, so Blanton Collier immediately opened up the offense. And I think Collier in 62, I think he was, he was an offensive yeah, he was an offensive, offensive coordinator. Yeah, so I think yeah. he was the offensive coordinator. So yeah, so that that made a difference right off the bat. How they opened up the offense, I'm not 100% sure because Jim Brown doubling his running total, you would think okay, they're running the ball more, how can that be opening up the offense? And I'm I can't don't have an answer to that, but they did open up the offense a lot more in one somehow some way it was a lot more opened up than it was in 62 and the players loved that. Sure, in '62, their starting quarterback was Frank Ryan. Who? Oh, it was who, Ryan. Okay. Yeah, and he threw for fifteen hundred and forty-one yards. In '63, he upped that to two thousand twenty-five, and then in '64, he increased that to two thousand four hundred and four. And a couple years later, nineteen sixty-six, he had his yeah. biggest year where he threw for almost three thousand yards, and right. that was in you know, 14 games. It's not like it is today with the offenses today. I mean, 2,974 yards is a lot of yardage, and that went along with 29 touchdowns. 29 touchdowns. I think that 29 touchdowns was a record for the Browns until Brian Saint broke it in 1980. Yeah. Sure. But, yeah, so, you know, Browns' numbers went up. Ryan's numbers went up. The wins went up. So, you know – However they opened up the offense, he opened up the offense, he did. 
and I, and I know the players were very happy about that. Mm-hmm. You know, you touched on this just a little while ago that one of the biggest challenges that Blanton Collier faced was his hearing. He was almost deaf and he needed hearing aids. How did that affect his ability to coach? I just know I just know it was a problem, but imagine look at the success they had with him, even with the problem. Can you imagine what they would have done if he could actually hear? <laughs> if he could, could have actually heard? Sure, yeah. <laughs> but I, did, I didn't really get into that other than with Gary Collins. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. Uh, but I, I do know it was a problem. It was definitely a problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, Collins told me that he, he retired because of that. Okay, time for a little sidebar. Collier's daughter, Dr. Kay Collier McLaughlin, wrote a wonderful book about her father called Football's Gentle Giant, The Blanton Collier Story. And in it, she discussed Blanton's hearing loss. According to Kay, no one could determine whether or not Blanton was born with the disability. The only thing they knew for sure was the condition was inoperable. As his daughter wrote, he had an inoperable nerve deafness involving loss of discrimination more than the loss of volume. In other words, if folks shouted him, it still wouldn't help, and he struggled in a room with lots of background noise. Blanton became an expert at lip reading, which amusingly led to his dislike of beards. Blanton's wife would help him with phone calls because he could hear sounds, but he couldn't distinguish words. She would sit by the phone and write down what the speaker would say. Even Art Modell tried to find help for him, but that didn't work. Blanton did the best he could at reading lips in press conferences, and the media respected him so much that they worked with him, even restating questions without any fear. His biggest worry, though, was the sideline phone to the press box, which gave him great trouble, and that ultimately played a very pivotal role in his retiring from the game. You know, before Blanton became coach of the Browns, he was an assistant with the team, but was ultimately let go. And that's when he wound up with Kentucky as its head coach. What led to Blanton's dismissal from the Browns in his first go-round, if you know? And then, of course, after his days at Kentucky, he rejoined the Browns, like we said, as an offensive assistant. So what led to his dismissal his first go-round? Do you you have any idea on that? I think. I'm not 100% sure, but I think – I don't think he'd been a head coach before anywhere at any level. I'm not no, sure. He was but, uh, yeah, in I high think, school. In high school, yeah. he was a high school head coach I, for a I number think of he years. Looked at it, I think he looked at it as an opportunity to be a head coach, at a, even though Kentucky has never really been a football school. It's still a big-time school. And I think, I think he uh, looked at it as uh, getting a chance to be a head coach. And probably because his ultimate goal, I would think, would, would be a to be head coach in the NFL, and I, I think he thought he would have a better shot of becoming an NFL head coach if he had some college head coaching experience. Mm-hmm. And of That's co- what I'm thinking. And, of course, when he went to Kentucky, he had to follow a legend there as well. He had to replace Bear Bryant. 
I wonder how that helped him prepare, if it did at all, for replacing a guy like Paul Brown. You mean mean replacing Bear Bryant? Yeah, like first he replaced Bear Bryant. So he had to replace (laughs) a legend there, and then he had to replace a legend in Cleveland in Paul Brown. So I wonder... Was Bear Bryant a legend at that time? All right, Roger brings up a great point. Was Bear Bryant a legend at that point in his career? That's why I love Sports Forgotten Heroes, because you never know where it will take you. And looking back, I guess Bryant was only in the beginning stages of establishing his legend. He started off at Maryland, where he went 6-2-1 in 1945. In 1946, he was named coach of Kentucky, where he remained through the 1953 season, compiling a record of 60 wins, 23 losses, and 6 ties. And that included a mark of 11-1 and in 1950, a most interesting year. You see, Kentucky topped an undefeated Oklahoma team in the Sugar Bowl 13-7. Now, back in those days... The final rankings were announced prior to the bowl games, so Oklahoma was number one and was named the national champions. Kentucky finished the year ranked seventh, but several other polls were taken after the bowl games and declared Kentucky as the number one team in the country. Anyway, Bryant left the program after the 1953 season because he didn't want to take a back seat to Adolph Rupp and the basketball team. Bryant then moved on to Texas A&M, where he really made a name for himself with the Junction Boys, a Texas A&M team that he ultimately led to a nine-win and one-tie record without any losses in 1956 to win the Southwest Conference. So, was Collier following a legend? Nah, I guess not, not at that point. But he was following a coach who lifted Kentucky to heights it had never experienced before. Collier, who had spent seven years under Paul Brown with Cleveland, filled the opening at Kentucky. In his eight years there, he went 41, 36, and three ties. Kentucky fired him after the 1961 season, Sort of unfairly, like Bryant before him, the football team played second fiddle to the basketball team, and the university placed recruiting restrictions on the football staff that were very difficult to overcome. So like Bryant, Collier found recruiting hard, but he sure put together one heck of a staff that included Don Shula, Chuck Knox, Howard Schnellenberger, and Bill Arnsberger. One more note about Collier in Kentucky. His best season came in 1954, his first year with the team, when he went 7-3, 5-2 in the SEC, and was named the conference's Coach of the Year. So Blanton's first year, getting back to Blanton Collier, Blanton's first year with the Browns as their head coach was 1963, and right. Cleveland went 10-4 and four to finish second in the Eastern Conference. Pretty good yep. start to his career with Cleveland. Then in 64, the Browns went 10-3-1, and one, and they right. won the NFL championship over the Baltimore Colts. What can you right. tell us about 
Blanton's first couple of years with the Browns and the kind of impact he had on the team? I, I think he had a big impact. He, even though, like I said, even though he wasn't a rah-rah coach, I think he, I think he treated the players. I think he treated them with respect. I, I, I mean, obviously, I never interviewed the guy, but from from talking to the, some of the players that I interviewed for the book, they, I mean, I didn't talk to one player who didn't like him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a, he was a player's coach, and I think the players loved playing for him. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, I just think they loved, you know, would have tried to run through a brick wall for him. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, and I think, especially you know, on the offensive side of the ball, like we talked about, the he took the shackles off of the offense. And I think, you know, the players had been wanting that for the last three or four years of Paul Brown being the head coach. So I think he had a big impact. And then, you know, he probably had an impact on the defense, too, because when the defense saw how well the offense was playing, that probably made them play better, too. And you give them, or that probably made them play better, too. I mean, I just think it, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? It was, uh, you know, what, the offense doing well, and then the defense sees how well they're doing, and they do well. Um, it, it rubbed off on them, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, one thing about that, uh, that 64, uh, Browns defense was a, it was a, it was a bend, but don't break unit, but you know, it, it bended a lot, but it, it didn't break a lot. And, um, I'm not looking at the book right now, but one thing that a lot of Browns fans, old Browns fans might not know is that it, it came pretty close to happening that. Um, one of the defensive backs uh, would have had to start the Baltimore game in the 64 title game because Frank Ryan mm. was uh, Frank Ryan was uh, either I think he was injured a little bit and then yeah, he, the had backup, a, he had a shoulder he had a bum shoulder and then the backup was Jim Nanowski was in the hospital all week uh, he had some sort of flu he lost like 20 pounds and without looking at the book I can't remember. Uh, which two defensive backs who had quarterbacking experience in college, but there were two defensive backs that were having nightmares nights before the game, thinking, am I going to have to start the championship game? The two defensive backs Roger is referring to are Ross Fickner, I hope I got that right, and Bobby Franklin. Fickner, who played DB in the NFL, actually played quarterback at Purdue in 1957, 58, and 1959. Over the course of three seasons, he completed 60 passes on 155 attempts and threw for nine touchdowns. Bobby Franklin, also a DB, who also played quarterback in college for Ole Miss, during the same years Fickner was at Purdue, completed 85 passes on 194 attempts and threw for 12 touchdowns. His best season was 1958 when he led the Rebels to a 9-2 mark, a national ranking of 11th, and a Gator Bowl win over Florida. Fickner, by the way, played eight seasons for the Browns and one with the New Orleans Saints. For Cleveland, he intercepted 27 passes and scored three touchdowns. Franklin played all seven of his seasons for Cleveland, intercepted 13 passes, and scored two touchdowns. Now, back to 1964, as we said. 
Ryan was nursing a sore shoulder and Jim Nanowski had some sort of virus and lost 25 pounds. Had Ryan been unable to go, Blanton Collier would have looked towards Fickner or Franklin. As it was, the Colts roughed up Ryan pretty good that day, but he was able to stay in the game and led the Browns to the 1964 championship win. Well, let's talk about that championship game. What can you tell us, you know, from the standpoint of the Baltimore Colts, if I remember correctly, were pretty heavily favored in that game, and the Browns came in and they took it right to them. Yeah, maybe not offensively, but defensively they they did. And when the score was 0-0 at halftime, um, the the players in the Browns locker room, from what I was told, they, even though it was 0-0 and they weren't winning, it, it, it was like a victory to be tied with Baltimore 0-0. And it, 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 it just told them we, you know, we are, we're going to win this game. We, we, we held them to zero points, I guess, especially the defense. Uh, they, they were just so confident coming out, coming out in the third quarter. And, you know, even though Jim Brown didn't score any touchdowns and it was pretty much all Frank Ryan and Gary Collins, there was a very important run by Brown. I think it was like a 45 or 50 yarder that I think, uh, it's, it, it helps set up. I think the, I think the first, uh, either the first field goal or the first touchdown, one of the first scores by the Browns was set up by a very long, it was either a Brown run of 45 or 50 yards, or it was a catch and run of 45, mm-hmm, 50 yards. Mm-hmm. So. So, you know, and Brown ended up, I think he ended up with like, I think he ended up with over 100 yards rushing. So mm-hmm. even though he didn't have any touchdowns, he was still a vital part part of the game. And of course, Frank Ryan had a heck of a game and he and Gary Collins connected on three touchdown passes and including one being a 51 yarder. So it was, yeah. you're right, it was a lot about Cleveland's defense as they beat the Colts 27 to nothing. But then the following year, the Browns went 11-3. and So they improved in the wins department, and they returned to the championship game. And what I find interesting is that in each of those two games, the 64 championship game and the 65 championship game, the defensive play calling was taking was was taken away from the defensive coaches. Do you know why that if, is? From no, from uh, interviewing Bernie Parrish when I interviewed him, he told me that um, he called the defensive plays in the '64 title game. The coaches didn't; he did. Then in the '65 title game at Green Bay, he said for some reason they told the coaches told him that the coaches are going to call the defensive plays. You're not going to call the defensive oh, plays okay. in the Green Bay game. And 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 Parrish said that's why they lost the game. And Parrish also told me, uh, it's been so long since I talked to him, but he told me that something to the effect that if, if uh, the coaches told Bernie, if you go against our wishes and you do call the defensive plays on your own, uh, Art Modell is going to have security escort you out of out of Lambeau Field. <laughs> Why is that though? If the guy did so well in '64, calling defensive plays and and shutting out an yeah. offense that had Johnny Unitas and John Mackey, 
why would they take the defensive calling away from him? What was well, the philosophy I, behind that? Well, that's what I asked uh, Bernie. And if he didn't know the answer, I certainly don't know the answer. That it, You know, 50 years later, he's still trying to figure out why they did that. <laughs> so he, he didn't have an answer for me. But uh, one thing Gary Collins told me was, even though the playing surface was terrible um, with the mud and all that stuff, he said that uh, he was upset with the offensive play calling because I think the Browns' only touchdown was on a pass from Ryan to Collins. And he said they were actually throwing it pretty well. And then all of a sudden, in the second half, the coaches decided to stop throwing it and start running it. Hmm. And he said he never got an answer. And he said if we would have continued throwing it, uh, he said that we would have won the game. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would you want to throw the ball on a terrible field? But that's what he told me. That's hmm. what he told me. Hmm. Well, Cleveland lost that game to the Green Bay Packers, the championship game, 23-12. to Let's talk about some of the good stuff, and and that being how some of the players felt about Blanton Collier. And let's start off with... The biggest one of them all, Jim Brown, he must have been thrilled, as you alluded to earlier, that Collier took the reins off the offense and sort of, yeah. for lack of a better term, let it run wild. How did Jim Brown feel about Blanton Collier? What did he have to say about Collier? Yeah, it's it's been a lot of years since I talked to him, but uh, the little that we did talk about Blanton, just what you said, I mean, he... There, there, there was a contingent of players, including Jim Brown, uh, in the three or four years leading up to uh, Collier taking over. That, you know, they they were. I don't, I don't want to say they formed a committee, but there was a lot of complaining by several of the players to the uh, to the front office, uh, whoever the GM was, that, or maybe even the Art Modell too, to get rid of Paul Brown. I mean, I've I've heard that from several players over the years. And, um, you know, they just, when, uh, when Collier opened up the offense and, and look what they did, uh, it just, I think they felt like they were getting out of prison or something, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, they were free to, to show, you know, showcase their talents. Like apparently Brown wasn't allowing them to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about, but, yeah, go ahead. What about Frank Ryan? How did he feel about, I'm going to ask you about a couple of players. We started with yeah. Brown and we're going to talk about Ryan and Gary Collins and the great Paul Warfield as well. So how did Frank yeah, I mean, Ryan feel about, about they, 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 they all felt the same way. They all felt the same way, you know, uh, about it. They, they were all, uh, getting bigger numbers and, you know, I mean, I don't think there was one player. There might have been one player that I talked to that was a bigger Paul Brown fan than Blanton Collier fan, but um, 99% of the players I spoke to were were happy, were agreed with the move. And whether whether you're talking about Frank Ryan or Jim Brown or Gary Collins, they all basically told me the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Ryan, Ryan was happier because they were throwing the ball more. Brown was happier because he was getting more yards. Uh, Collins, the uh, uh, Warfield, you know, it, it, they just they, they felt too. They felt like they had shackles on in, in the last few years before uh, Collier took over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and there. So I mean, it was 
there really wasn't, they they all pretty much told me the same thing. Mm -hmm. They they all pretty much told me the same thing. Yeah. So, so the Browns win the title in 64, they go back in 65. And in your book, you wrote that Gary Collins thought that the 1966 team that went nine and five was the best team he played on. Why would he say that, especially when you consider the fact that the Browns no longer had Jim Brown to lead the way? So first talk about why Gary Collins would think that the 1966 team was the best. Well, you know, that's not the first time I've ever heard anything like that. It sounds strange to say. I remember him telling me that he might be a little biased in terms of that was uh, Frank Ryan's biggest year, passing almost 3,000 yards, 29 touchdowns, and Collins loved to catch passes. So, um, you know, the passing game obviously was uh, up a notch. Um, But, you know, that's not the first first time I've heard that. I've heard uh, many Pittsburgh Steelers uh, say that, uh, you know, they won four Super Bowls in the 70s. And uh, 74, 75, 78, and 79. But I've heard several Steelers in interviews and books say that the 76 team was the best of the 70s, and they didn't even get to the Super Bowl. So, you know, um, like I said, I'm sure the passing game uh, being what it was that year in 66 probably helped Gary Collins' opinion when he said that. But, um, like I said, uh, I've, I've heard that with different teams besides the Steelers before. I just can't think of another team at this moment. But, uh, you know, I mean, they had he, they had incredible offensive statistics for the time in 1966. What about Jim Brown? This is the year that he walked away from the team, and it's just amazing to think that I guess these were some of the problems with Art Modell. He didn't like the fact that Jim Brown wasn't in camp, that Jim Brown was out filming the movie The Dirty Dozen. It got delayed, so he said he'd be there later. He was only 29 years old, but he was being fined $500 a day, so he said, forget it. I'm not playing for you. How 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 bizarre is that? I mean, what kind of effect? How how did the Browns feel about that? I do remember him telling me that you know no nobody tells me what to do, and he said I had absolutely no problem retiring from the game at twenty nine under those circumstances. He he, it was not a hard decision for him. He, it was an easy decision. I know, which seems crazy because he probably could have played up at that level through 1970 and uh, I had some players tell me that had that Jim Brown stayed around they the Browns might have gotten those Super Bowls in 68 and 69 mm-hmm. but uh um he had he had no problem with it um as for Browns management how they felt about it I'm you know I don't know but I'm sure they were not too thrilled about it because no one knew at the time that Leroy Kelly was going to become a Hall of Famer sure and I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Leroy Kelly, uh, you know, he wasn't a better runner than Jim Brown, but that's that's not, he was still a great runner. And what a lot of people might not remember is that Brown or uh, Kelly did not officially replace Jim Brown. Kelly, Ernie Green replaced Jim Brown at 
I think, fullback. Uh, and Leroy Kelly became the halfback. I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that's how it went. Green replaced Brown, and then Kelly became the the uh, the halfback. I think, but but Kelly, you know, those first sixty six, you know, the late sixties. He, I think, he led the NFL in rushing twice. I'm not sure, but him and Gail Sears are always going back and forth. I think. Um, so that I, you know, that's yeah, Leroy Kelly. That's how that went. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously. It's hard to replace a Jim yeah. Brown, but right. they did have Ernie Green and they had Leroy Kelly. So right. in '66, Kelly was a halfback, and he rushed for 1,141 yards and scored 15 touchdowns, and and that's to go along with 32 receptions for 366 yards and another touchdown. Then in '67, like you said. He led the NFL in rushing and in total yards. So in 67, he had 1,205 yards, scored 11 touchdowns. He averaged 86 yards a game. He averaged five yards rushing every time he touched the ball. And again, 282 yards receiving, two touchdowns. And then he did even better in 68. Leroy Kelly rushed for 1,239 yards to lead the league. He scored 16 touchdowns. He added another four touchdowns receiving, and he led the league in total yards with 1,536. So how good was Leroy? Yeah, tell me about Leroy Kelly. You know, at that time, I think in 64 and 65, his first two years, for the most part, I think he was just a kick returner on special teams. And he, I think he got in at running back a little bit, but I don't think Modell or anybody really had any idea what kind of running back Leroy Kelly was going to make because of, and that's why they wanted Brown to come back so badly because he was great. But they also, even though they had Ernie Green, they didn't feel, you know, they, they didn't feel like, uh, Nobody knew how great Leroy Kelly was going to be. Right. He didn't come from so, a big school. He played for Morgan State. Sometimes it's timing. I mean, he was in the right place at the right time. Jim Brown retires, and Leroy Kelly gets his chance. I mean, he, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, he wasn't just a great running back in 66, 67, and 68. He was also a great running back in 69, 70, 71, 72. 73. Now, obviously, his yardage totals went down when he got into the early 70s a little bit. But, I mean, you know, he, uh, I think he caught on with the Raiders in the 74 training camp. But he, you know, I think he played in the WFL. But, I mean, his career, his NFL career, you know, was basically 64 to 73 with the Browns. Mm-hmm. And, and he wound um, up in the Hall of Fame. And he wound up in the Hall of Fame. And he, you know, he, I mean, his, you know, I got a lot of quotes from players about their teammates and his teammates, I mean, just rave reviews about Leroy Kelly. So that 1966 season, the Browns went 9-5 and five and they missed the playoffs for only the second time during Collier's time as head coach. They would only, the killer, yeah, go ahead. The killer that year in 66 was a Thanksgiving Day loss to Dallas, 26-14. Mm-hmm. I think that was the killer. 
because uh, I think if they'd have won that game, they might have gone past, gone ahead of Dallas in the standings or something. It was very close, mm-hmm. but it was that Thanksgiving loss in '66 that really did them in. But I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Well, I was going to get to no, please. Uh, anytime you got something, just let me know. They they did make it back to the playoffs in '67, and um, they again had gone nine and five, but they made the yeah. playoffs and again lost to the Dallas Cowboys. But this time in the playoffs, in the divisional round, they got walloped fifty-two to fourteen. But they made it back to the championship game in 1968, and once again they faced the Colts. Now let's refresh our memories. In 1964, as we discussed earlier, the Browns beat the Colts in the championship game, twenty-seven yeah. to nothing. In '68. The Browns beat the Colts during the regular season, yes. thirty to twenty. That but, was Baltimore's only loss of the year. That was their only loss of the year, right? And this time, when they faced them in the championship game, it wasn't pretty. Cleveland lost well, thirty-four to nothing. What happened? Well, before we get to that, the the home playoff game against Dallas that year in '68. You know, the game was in Cleveland, but Dallas was favored. And the Browns beat them pretty handily, 31-20. to 20. And then the next year, they played in the same round at Dallas in the Cotton Bowl. And the Dallas was favored in that game. And the Browns cleaned their clock. So, I mean, Dallas, the Browns were a playoff nemesis for Dallas in 68 and 69. Mm-hmm. As for the Baltimore game in 68, I, I seem to remember a few of the players thinking that the, because they beat them in the regular season, they were thinking ahead to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Mm, some place that that unfortunately the Browns have have never made. So they lost that sixty eight game to the Colts. How good were the Colts? Oh God, I, I don't know how many Hall of Famers there were on that team, but they they not only were they. Had, I'm pretty sure they scored the most points in the NFL that year. I think it was over four hundred points. I think, um, and probably more. They probably had more. Uh, Hall of Famers on offense than they did than they did defense, but I mean they they went thirteen and one in the regular season, and um, let's see we're talking about sixty eight. So um, I don't know who they would have beaten the Western Conference Championship. Maybe the Rams or Green Bay. I'm not sure, um, but but uh, it sounds weird saying Baltimore was in the Western Conference with yeah. the Eastern City, but they were in the Western Conference. But uh, that, you know, I think the Browns, because they beat them in that regular season game, I think they were looking ahead, and that's that sounds crazy to be looking ahead from a team that was that good. Mm-hmm. The Browns, the Browns were just never in that game. They were mm-hmm. just never in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that- then it happened. It happened again in '71. Baltimore played at Cleveland in the divisional playoffs, and Baltimore, a couple drop passes by Cleveland. I think uh, got him off to a bad start. Baltimore dominated that game too in '71. Well, yeah the the playoffs in 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 the '68 season. Baltimore beat Minnesota twenty four to fourteen. Like you said, Cleveland beat Dallas thirty one to twenty. And then in the championship game, Baltimore beat Cleveland thirty four to nothing. Just so everybody also knows, there was what they call the playoff bowl where the two losers in the first round actually went up against each other. And in that game, which was played after 
the championship game, Dallas beat yeah. Minnesota 17-13. to 13. You're talking about the playoff bowl in Miami? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the playoff bowl in Miami. Yeah, that. Uh, the, the little I know about the playoff bowl is that uh, the Browns played in it three times, I think, and I, uh, I have it in the book. I forget what mm-hmm. season. Uh, it must have maybe it was '67 when they lost to Dallas. I think they played the Rams, and it was just there was like thirty-seven thousand people in an eighty-thousand seat stadium there, and it just it just uh, was not <laughs> not exciting, not not exciting at all. Right, right, sure. I I don't know why you would play a a consolation game. Let, they played it after. They played it after the championship. That is correct. A week later. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. You would think that you would play maybe that on Saturday in the championship yeah. game on yeah. Sunday, but they didn't yeah. do that. Well, you know, the Final Four in the college basketball as recently, I think, as recently as '79, they they had uh, the the losers in each semifinal play each other for third place. Yep. They sure did. They sure did. They had the the consolation game. Yeah, but but I'm willing to bet the consolation game in that was before the championship game. I'm willing to bet, right? Yes, it was. It yeah. was. I think I can't remember if it was played the same day just earlier, or it had to be the same day. Just oh. it was the first game, not the second game. You know, not not seven, the day before. I think seventy eight, seventy nine was the last season they did that. And then I didn't get interested in college basketball until seventy nine eighty. So I, I totally have I have no memory of the third place game. Right. In in and just so you know, in sixty seven, Dallas beat Cleveland fifty two to fourteen. Yeah. Green Bay beat Los Angeles, the Rams twenty eight to seven. And then in the championship game, Green Bay on December thirty first, nineteen sixty seven. Beat yep. the Cowboys twenty-one to seventeen, and then a week later they had the playoff bowl, January seventh, in the Orange Bowl, and the Rams beat the the Browns thirty to six. So let's get back to the Browns here and nineteen sixty-nine. And when you look back at everything, I think the nineteen sixty-nine season really signaled the end of the Browns, let's call it championship pedigree. Yeah. I mean, that Cleveland made it to the playoffs and they beat Dallas in the first round, but it lost to Minnesota in the second round, 27 to seven. So let's yeah. talk about a few things here. First, well, Bill Nelson replaced Frank Ryan as the team's quarterback. Why? Before I forget, I just want to mention two things before I forget. Mm-hmm. That, uh, the the 27-7 loss, the Browns had lost in Minnesota earlier in the year 51-3. to So that 27-7 loss was much improved over the 51-3 to <laughs> game. Sure. And then the second thing I want to, remember, want to say is that uh, the 69 Browns, uh, the only Browns team ever to have at least 80,000 fans at every single home game. The only time it's ever happened in Browns history. Okay, so Bill Nelson replacing Frank Ryan, right? Is that what you said? Yes, sir. Okay, well, that happened, as I'm sure you know, that happened, I think, in week three of 68, the year before. Um, Wait, they traded for Nelson in the 68 offseason, and then I'm pretty sure Ryan was the 
starter in 68 for like the first two or three games and the offense, they got beaten badly, I think, by Dallas and Detroit and their offense was just doing nothing. Um, so Collier, he just, you know, he, he, he felt I got to do something to spark the offense. And I think, I think Nelson came in as the starter for a game against St. Louis. And I'm not sure if they won or not, but even if they lost, you, they, you could just tell that the offense was much better with, with, uh, with Phil Nelson. And then in that 68 season with Nelson, they went through about an eight, eight game stretch where they scored at least 30 points in like seven or eight straight games. And they scored at least 40 points in three straight games. And that's, that's, 30 points in seven or eight straight games. That's the only time that's ever happened in team history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Frank Ryan wasn't thrilled that he was getting replaced, um, but he, he understood it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nelson went 9-2 and two as a starter in 68, and then okay. as a starter, obviously, during the 69 season, he started all yeah. 14 games. Right. He went 10-3-1. Well, yeah, Ryan was gone after '68. I think. Right. I think Jerry Rome. I think Jerry Rome was was Nelson's backup in '69. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the defense, um, you know, ten three and one. You have Bill Nelson leading the way at at quarterback. Leroy Kelly's in the in the backfield. We really haven't spoken much about Cleveland's defense during our conversation. Talk a little bit about the defense. What kind of defense was it? What was the strengths of the team? Who are who are the stars of the team? I don't think it was a. Uh, I don't think it was necessarily a great defense. Um, but I mean, they had you know sixty nine. Who did they have? I think they had John Garlington as a linebacker. Um, Jack Gregory as a defensive end, one of the defensive ends. In the defensive backfield, I'm trying to think who was in the defensive backfield. Um, uh, I can't think of any defensive backs, but you know, it, it it wasn't. They weren't. It was the '69 defense. I don't think it was a great defense, but I think it was good enough to get them where they got. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it was good enough to get them where they got. Um, you know, getting to the NFL championship game two straight years, even though they lost, that's no small, no small potatoes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think that this really, the 69 season, for a myriad of reasons, really signaled the end. And, and I guess, what about Collier? How did the loss, to, both losses to the Vikings affect him? Is this the point where he decided it was time to start thinking about leaving the game, or did that not enter his mind at that point? You know, I'm not going to sound crazy. This might be like uh, Gary Collins talking about 1966, but I, from what I remember from reading uh, Blanton Collier's quotes, which I used in the book from the, from the Plain Dealer, I think the loss to Dallas in the fifty-two fourteen loss in sixty-seven. Mm-hmm. I think he was more ups- I think he was more upset about that loss than any other loss, mm-hmm. even the even the championship games. And I do remember writing that at the end of that chapter in nineteen sixty-nine, that Blanton Collier was in relatively fine spirits the day after. Mm. Interesting. Uh, lo- lo- looking ahead to nineteen seventy, he was in relatively fine spirits. I remember writing that. 
But so. it was 1970, the draft, that I think okay. is where it all fell apart. So the offseason, and, and like I said, this is really where Cleveland became a different team. As I say, hindsight is always 2020. Um, there's a lot to discuss here, and a lot of it had to affect Collier. First, they trade Paul Warfield. So how important or how good was Paul Warfield with the Browns? I think most people would remember Warfield as a Miami Dolphin. Yeah, I mean, he, he was just such a great receiver. He, uh, I think uh, the, the first sentence of his chapter, I wrote that he, uh, his last final NFL game was December 18th, 1977, and he should have been inducted into the NFL on December 19th, 1977. He was that good. Mm-hmm. He, uh, I mean, he, he, when you watched him run, he looked, it, it didn't look like he was trying that hard because he was, he just, it looks like he was just sort of gliding. Mm-hmm. He just, he, and, and I mean, he, his yards per catch, I mean, with the Browns, I'm not sure about with the Dolphins, but with the Browns, I think he averaged like 20 or 21 yards per catch, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I don't think a lot of people like that trade. I remember a lot of the players telling me they couldn't believe that Paul Warfield was traded. But, you know, Bill Nelson did not have good knees. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, management felt... You know, Mike Phipps was a very talented quarterback from Purdue and um, big, strong guy, quarter, you know, a big Ben Roethlisberger, maybe not as big as Roethlisberger, but still a, a big body and a, a big, strong guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so they made headlines in the Plain Dealer a la when Bernie Kosar got released in 93. Right. Well, let's let's go back to Warfield for a second, just so you know. The the in eight years that that includes his first and second stint with the Browns. He came back yeah. to the Browns in '76 right. after his one year in the ill-fated World Football League. Right. Um. He 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 averaged for his career with the Browns nineteen point two yards per reception. There and you go. With the Dolphins in five years. 21.5 yards per reception. So there you go. He yeah. averaged about 20, 20 yards, yards for his per whole reception. NFL career. Yeah, just absolutely amazing. And now let's get on to Nelson. Why did Cleveland feel compelled to make such a trade? They traded Warfield to the Dolphins for the third pick in the NFL draft, and that yeah. wound up being Mike Phipps. Let's hold off on Phipps for, for a second. What was it about Nelson? Were his knees that bad? Did management just yeah. not have the confidence that he was going to be able to lead the team anymore? That that had to have been it. And I know his knees were contri- were the were the main factor. They felt they felt he didn't have much time left. They they just you know. From from what I was told and from what I remember being told, um, they just felt that uh, Nelson's knees were probably like Joe Namath's knees, you know. Um, and you know, to get a quarterback the caliber of Mike Phipps, how well he did in college, they I guess they felt that uh, 
you know, you, to get something good, you got to give up something good. Well, let's talk about that because everyone in the organization, at least this is what you wrote, was really high on Mike Phipps with one exception. And that one exception was the team's head coach, Blanton oh, Collier. God. Oh what my God! Did... I'm so I'm, I'm so embarrassed that I forgot that I wrote. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. What did everyone see in him, and what was it that Collier didn't like about him, or was it flat out that Collier just didn't want to trade Warfield? Now that you bring it up, I'm not sure if I wrote this or not, but I seem to think that Collier may have paid Phipps a visit at Purdue. And I'm not sure, I don't think it was for a game because it couldn't have been because he would have been busy with the Brown season. But maybe in the after the season or something, there was something about Phipps. I don't know if it was their interview, um, but not, now that you mentioned that, I do remember that Collier, I guess, was the only one that was not high on him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't re- I don't remember exactly what it was about Phipps that Collier didn't like. I don't remember that. Well, I could tell you this. In, in in my research for today's show, I went through the 1970 draft. And I got to tell you, it was not a draft that was rich in quarterbacks. The number okay. one pick that year was a pretty good quarterback, a guy by Bradshaw. the name of Terry Bradshaw. Yeah. They took Phipps with the number three pick. They, they right. passed up Mike McCoy, who was a defensive tackle from Notre Dame. And we'll then the second round, we'll he the was second the second pick. pick. Yeah, so okay. when Bradshaw, McCoy, Phipps, and after that, there wasn't another quarterback taken until the fourth pick in the second round, and that was a guy by the name of Dennis Shaw, whom the Buffalo Bills took, and then. With the 51st pick in the second round, the Minnesota Vikings took a guy by the name of Bill Kappelman. I mean, this was not not a quarterback-rich draft by any stretch of the imagination. Then who knows? That might have been a contributing factor. The Browns feeling we needed a young quarterback. It's not a quarterback-rich draft. We're not going to get Bradshaw. Let's go for Phipps. But but I don't think that was the only reason fearing they wouldn't get another quarterback because it wasn't, I think they really were high on Phipps. I think they really thought he was going to be their quarterback of the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, just so you know, if they could have waited one more year, that's when you had Jim Plunkett who won a couple of Super Bowls, Archie Manning. Been, yeah, that might have been the Archie Manning year, 71. Yep, 71, okay. Dan Pastorini. So you had a couple of, a couple yeah. of decent uh, quarterbacks going in in the nineteen seventy one draft. So you know, yeah, talking of, talking about sports forgotten heroes. Well, you you should maybe do one on Archie Manning. I mean, a lot of people say that had he not spent most of his career with pathetic Saints teams, that he would have been Terry Bradshaw, and Terry Bradshaw would have been Archie Manning. Bradshaw would have gone to New Orleans. Sure, sure. Anything's possible, right? Yeah. I I just wanted to finish up that thought. Just so you know, Lynn Dickey was in that draft. Kenny won. Yep, he went to the Houston Oilers. 
Kenny Anderson was in that draft. Okay. And he went to the Cincinnati Bengals. So that was a good quarterback draft. Yeah, Joe Theismann was in that draft. Wow, jeez. Yeah, so if they had been able to hold on for one more year, who knows what would have happened, right? But like I said, hindsight is always 2020, as the saying goes, and I have no idea what that really means. So for his career, Mike Phipps played 12 years, seven for the Browns and five for the Bears. He started just 71 games, and he compiled a record of 38-31-2. He had a completion percentage of 49.2%. He had a really good year with the Bears in '79 that added to that made that really good. He had a really good year for the Bears in '79. He was like nine and one that year as a starter. Well, his overall record certainly, you know, forty nine point two percent completion percentage. Yeah. His quarterback well, rating was 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 not very impressive. It was fifty two point six. I think Collier a, might have been justified in his concern over picking Mike yeah, Phipps. Definitely. I mean he with the Browns, I think Phipps had forty touchdown passes and eighty one interceptions. But um I don't know if you if you read the whole book, but there's a guy named Mike Patika that I interviewed for the book and he is he was in the minority thinking Phipps was not nearly as bad as he showed. He and and he gave his reasons, basically saying, you know, uh, the Browns' offensive line was going downhill. Uh, Dick Shafrath was gone, I think, after '71. Gene Nickerson retired after '73. It was just a makeshift line. And, and Phipps's really bad years of like '74 and '75. I mean, he he just gave the argument that Mike Phipps was not nearly as bad as most people say he was. Mm-hmm. But he was in the minority. He was in the minority. Well. It's pretty tough to argue that he wasn't as bad as his record shows. I mean, 55 touchdown passes for his career, 108 interceptions. So for every touchdown pass he threw, he basically threw two interceptions. Not too good. And you're right, 1979, he had a really strong year. He started 10 games. He went 9-1. and one. He threw yeah. nine touchdown passes and eight interceptions. 70, 79 with the Bears. He led him to the playoffs. 72 with the Browns. 72 and 79 were his best years. Yeah, in 72, he was 10 and 3. He threw for 13 touchdowns and 16 Six, interceptions. 16 interceptions. Yeah. yeah. They, had a lot of, they had a lot of cardiac victories that year. The 72 Browns had a lot of uh, last-minute uh, wins that year. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a pretty exciting year that year. But that was definitely his glory year with the Browns was uh, 72. And he was off to a great start in 77, or I mean in 76, uh, against the Jets in the opener, he had three, I think, three touchdown passes, no interceptions. He led him to a 21-10 lead, and then, then uh, he got injured and missed most of the rest of the year. Right. He only he only appeared in four games, and and that was certainly after Blanton had had retired from the game. Um, right. How did the pick of Mike Phipps ultimately affect the career of Blanton Collier? I hate to put it all on the shoulders of Mike Phipps, but I don't it's, think yeah, I don't think it did. I think Collier, from what I heard, he retired because of his hearing. Now, had Collier not had a hearing problem, 
with the pick of Phipps, would it be a different story? Maybe. But I can tell you this, in the long run, it paid off for the Browns because the draft pick that they got just turned out to be Ozzie Newsome. Oh, that's that's not a bad pick by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. Yeah. It just took a while I, to get I, there. I think I don't maybe you're right, that would be too far behind nineteen seventy. I think in the seventy seven trade where he went to the Bears, I, one of the draft picks the Browns got was Ozzie Newsom. I, in fact I know it was, but I, I think it was from that trade. So what to make of Mike Phipps? Of course, you can't pinpoint the demise of the Browns on Phipps. Football is the ultimate team sport, even though the quarterback plays such a pivotal role. And despite the fact that Collier was against drafting Phipps, by the time he was inserted as the starting quarterback, Collier had already retired from the game. And trading Paul Warfield had a more adverse effect, at least I think, on the team than anything or anyone. The fact is, Phipps did have a terrific college career. In fact, he was elected to the College Football Hall of Fame in 2006. At Purdue, Phipps was the starting quarterback for the Boilermakers in 1967, 68, and 69. Each year, Purdue was 8-2, and and in 1968, the Boilermakers actually started the year as the number one ranked team in the country, but finished the year ranked 10th, as Phipps, well, he missed two games due to an ankle injury. For his career at Purdue, Phipps completed 51.2% of his passes, throwing for 5,423 yards, 37 touchdowns, and 34 interceptions. His most notable year was 1969 when he led Purdue to a last-second win over Stanford, a game in which he threw five touchdown passes. He also led Purdue past Notre Dame for a third straight year, and he finished second in the Heisman Trophy race behind Steve Owen. Phipps was also a pretty smart guy as he was offered a Rhodes Scholarship, but he turned it down to play in the NFL. In the NFL, however, Phipps, well, he didn't meet with as much success as Roger and I discussed. He went 10-3 and in his first year as a starter in 1972, and he went 7-5-2 in his second year in 1973, which, you know, pretty good start. From there, however, it was really all downhill with Cleveland. After the 1976 season, he was traded to Chicago for a 1977 first-round pick. That pick turned out to be the great Ozzie Newsome. Phipps battled with Bob Avellini and Vince Evans for playing time and finally worked his way into the starting lineup with the Bears in 1979 when he went 9-1. That, folks, was his last really good season and he left the game after the 1981 season. So let, let's get back to Blanton real quick. Um, overall, when we look back at the career of Blanton Collier, how should he be remembered? I think he should be remembered um, as a guy who took over for a legend and immediately did better with the same players that the legend was not doing that great with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he won an NFL title in his second year 
and he played in th- he coached in three more NFL title games. Twice came within one victory of the Super Bowl, and his worst seat, other than seven and seven, his worst record was nine and five. Not too shabby. And let me ask you this: Why do you think he's well? sort of lost in the conversation of great Cleveland coaches, despite the fact that his time with the Browns was the last time the Browns were really a year in year out threat to win the NFL championship. Well, the late eighties, they were too, the late eighties. But um, I think the, the Collier doesn't get the credit he deserves for the same reason. The 65 to 69, the Browns don't get the credit they deserve. Now, if you're going to ask me what that reason is, why they don't get the credit, that I don't know. But I, I think, you know, uh, I think I think it goes hand in hand. The 1965 to 69 Browns are definitely sh- uh, left with the short end when when the short end of the stick when the topic is great memorable years from Browns history, the 40s and 50s, the 64 championship, the cardiac kids, and the Bernie Kosar years. Those are those eras that seem to get all the attention. Why that is, I don't know. Especially, they had great attendance in the late 60s. If you read my preface, um, they were regularly getting crowds, 77, 78, 81, 82,000. So it's not, like, it's not like fans were not showing up at the stadium. But for some reason, and then you could say, well, okay, it's so, so long ago. Um, that maybe people just don't remember it. Well, if that's the case, then why are the 40 and 50s brought up, you know? So, and I think the fact that Glenn Collier was the head coach of that team, he was the head coach of those teams that don't get respect. So, of course, he's not going to get the, 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 the respect he should because he was the head coach of teams that don't get that respect. Mm-hmm. Why that is, why they don't get that respect, that I don't know. I just hope that the book um, will will show readers, um, older readers, and people reading people who are not alive back then, how how important the sixty five to sixty nine Browns were to the history of the franchise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Roger, thank you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's always great speaking with you. And when you publish your next book, I certainly hope you'll consider coming back on. Great. I appreciate that. You know, over the years, there have been so many coaches in every sport who have been overshadowed or forgotten for a myriad of reasons. Guys who have won championships, but they did so in the shadows of their predecessors. In football, one of whom comes to mind immediately is George Seifert, who won with the 49ers after Bill Walsh had stepped down. In baseball, the Oakland A's won three World Series in a row, 1972, 73, and 74. And most think Dick Williams managed the team each year, but that's not true. Alvin Dark was at the home in 1974. It happens. And when it comes to the Browns, most think that all of their legendary teams were coached by Paul Brown and that after he left, no one else won. Well, Blanton Collier came aboard and led the Browns to the 1964 NFL Championship. 
One last note about Blanton. The University of Kentucky honored him by naming an award after him which recognizes individuals who excel on the football field and give back off of it. Guys like Tony Dungy, Jim Brown, Gail Sayers, and the entire Manning family have all won this prestigious award. Now, for today's mailbag, Andy Brown, I'm guessing from the St. Louis area, or at least a St. Louis sports fan, sent in a suggestion on sportsfh.com. Andy said, I would love to see a podcast on the spirit of St. Louis. The current general manager of the Orlando Magic is Jeff Weltman. During the time the spirits were in St. Louis, Jeff was an elementary school student while his dad ran the team. He would be a fascinating guest to talk about a very colorful franchise with an interesting history. Thank you. I love your podcast. Well, Andy, thank you for the suggestion. I will certainly reach out to the Magic and Mr. Weltman to see if we can do something on this old ABA franchise. We're getting into the hoop season, so it certainly is timely. If you have a suggestion or comment, please let us know by visiting sportsfh.com and just fill out the form and hit send. I'd like to once again thank today's guest, Roger Gordon, author of Blanton's Browns, a truly terrific book about one of football's most dominant teams. Also, thanks to all of you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.